How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer uh, to give everyone an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word and focus Uh, this evening on what God the Holy Spirit has to teach you and challenge you with from the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a tremendous privilege we have to study your Word that uh, you have gone through such tremendous effort to uh, reveal yourself to us over a period of uh, 14 or 1,500 years through over 40 different authors and a variety of different uh, settings and countries. And though um, human beings often disagree on all of the controversial subjects and topics we know, yet these 40 authors agree on everything, and there's no uh, presupposition of disagreement. Father, we're thankful that we have your word. It's been preserved for us, and we can have confidence that we have your word and that it is the truth, and that as uh, our Lord said, it is the truth that sets us free because it is the truth, because we're living according to the truth, and we know this is the truth because you have revealed it to us. Father, we pray that as we continue our study on the spiritual life and the virtues of the spiritual life, that you will challenge us with what we study this evening, that we may come to understand these passages and their significance in an even greater way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are, we've been studying in Romans, uh, Romans chapter five, and there is a list that the, the, the commentaries usually refer to these as virtue lists, and that's a good description, but it's a list of, 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 virtue, and it is a description in some degree of a process of Christian growth. There are parallels to this passage when we look at and and look in our study of Romans 5, fitting that within the context of our study of Romans as we're going through verse by verse. We come to a, a, a section like this or a paragraph like this. It's important to not only study it in terms of what it is saying, but then to recognize that this is part of a puzzle. This is part of a Puzzle is probably not the best analogy because it's not a puzzle, but it's part of the picture. But it's only one part of the picture. There are other passages from the Apostle Paul and also from Peter and in James that complement what is said here. So this is just one look, one expression of the dynamics that occur within the Christian life and the development of uh, for lack of a better term, using the term virtue as a broad category, developing Christian virtue, uh, uh, incorporating into that one word virtue all of the virtues that are manifest within the, within the Christian life. In Romans 5.2 we read, Through whom, that is to Christ also, we have access by faith into this grace uh, in which we stand and rejoice in hope or rejoice in confidence of the glory of God. And the glory of God here, that phrase is often used as a, as a uh, representation of the entire character of God. And how do we know that? Well, in context, we know that from a passage like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this phrase, the glory of God, doesn't always refer just specifically or literally to his uh, the, the effusion of his essence, but it relates to the, 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 his entire character. So it stands as a figure of speech that representing uh, the entire uh, character, all of the attributes of God. Paul then continues in that verse by saying, and not only that, but we also glory or we uh, ex- express our joy or we rejoice uh, which is a better uh, translation of this particular word, keeping it in the context of the use of the same word in Romans 5.2, we rejoice in tribulations. And it's important to think about that, that when we hit times that aren't going quite like we want them to, that we need to develop 
a a pattern, a habit pattern of thinking and reacting in terms of rejoicing and not in terms of complaining and griping and and moving in the negative direction. Now, that's easier for some people than others just because of your personality. But ultimately, you can, we can only real, truly rejoice in whatever we're facing, when it's especially when it's negative, when we face adversity, and that's how tribulations there should be translated, when we face adversities, because we know something. We have learned that this God as a sovereign God is over, the uh, supervises the events in our life, and that there is a plan and a purpose. We may not understand it now. We may not understand it until we're face-to-face with the Lord, but we will understand it, and when we do, we will know that it is good. So we, we rejoice in adversities because we know that adversity produces endurance, and endurance, character, and character, confidence. So we see a stair-stepping here of these uh, characteristics that the apostle is talking about. Now, uh, as I have continued my study of this, this is actually a literary device called a, uh, a, a sorite, and this is a, also known as a climax ladder or uh, gradatio is a Latin term for this, where you take a set of statements that proceed step by step uh, through the force of logic or relying upon uh, a succession of indisputable facts that are related to, to each other that build upward to a climactic conclusion. Each uh, statement usually picks up on a key word or phrase in the previous statement to build to the next statement, so it indicates a progression. And there are several of these, as I've mentioned, within the New Testament. We looked at uh, a parallel passage last time in James 1, 2 through 5, and we'll look at another one this evening in, in uh, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 5 to 11, but we need to spend a lot more time there because there's a lot more to examine in, in that particular p- passage. Uh, there's a, uh, you find examples of this in, in all kinds of ancient literature, whether it's uh, uh, the Old Testament or the New Testament, or whether you're looking in classical literature, or whether you're looking in rabbinic literature. In the Mishnah, there's an example of this uh, type of thing, which uh, in in the Mishnah, in the uh, Avot section, Pirkei Avot 1.1 states, uh, Moses received the Torah from Sinai and delivered it to Joshua, and then Joshua to the elders, then the elders to the prophets, and the prophets delivered it to the great men of the assembly or the synagogue. So you see that stair-step progression. You take a word, repeat it, and move it to the next level. And so you have these, the, these uh, uh, virtue ladders, I'm going to call them, which help us to understand a progression that occurs in spiritual growth. Now, what's interesting is you, you shouldn't get in your mind that this is a hard and fast progression, that Paul's writing a scientific treatise, that first you're going to do this and then this and then this and then this, because each time you look at these different lists, while there are similarities, and we're going to, I'm, I've got a chart in here that, that compares them, while you have these similarities, they're not identical. Uh, they are expressing a, the, the pattern by which Christians grow. And each time you have an expression of this, the writer is emphasizing different virtues and different qualities within the Christian life. So it's not a rigid sort of a, a formula that if you do this, then this will happen, and then you do this, and this will happen, and this, and then that will happen. And if you just get out your little checklist, you can mark off exactly how you're, you're growing. Life just doesn't work that way. Uh, life is dynamic, and we don't all grow at the same rate. We don't all need the same information uh, to grow. Some need more, uh, need information, doctrine taught a, a one way. Some need it taught another way. Everybody's different, and God provides. That's why we have different men uh, who have the gift of pastor-teacher who, through their personality, some appeal to some people, some appeal to other people, and so that God uses all of them within the uh, within the body of Christ. Now, in the New Testament, as I mentioned, the, the classic passages are the ones that we've looked at so far, Romans 5, 3 through 5, James uh, 1, uh, 2 through 5, 
Second uh, Peter 1, 5 through 7 is a, another one, as well as uh, Galatians uh, chapter 5, uh, 22 to 26. Now, in most of these lists, there's always, or it seems to be, not in every one of them, but in, in many of them, there is a contrast with a vice list. So you have this virtue and vice contrast. And essentially what the writer is doing, this follows a pattern of teaching that, teaching ethics that was common uh, not only in the Old Testament period in Israel, but it was also common in Greece and in other cultures where they would teach by comparison and contrast. We don't learn by just looking at what's right. We learn often by looking at what's right, but also comparing and contrasting it to things that are almost right or things that are uh, the opposite so that we can understand the various shades and gradations of distortion that, that may occur so that that which is uh, pure white, let's say, is better understood when you compare it uh, not just with black or with gray, but uh, with eggshell white or with some other shade of white. When you take pure white and and even with light bulbs, you can look around in some of these fluorescents here, and if you just had, for example, this one over here, you might think that was white, but if you look at that one and then the one closer to the pulpit, you see this this one up here has a bluer light. And so by contrast, you you say, oh, well, wait a minute, There's some. what makes that difference? Why do we have these kinds of distinctions and what causes that? And this is what causes uh, people to become curious and to investigate and to study and to learn things. And so ethical instruction was often taught within this kind of a contrast. Now, we got into this the last few weeks by looking at this emphasis on hope that we have in Romans 5. Uh, verses 2 through 5. And, and then we sort, I compared that with other passages. We looked first of all in how Paul taught, what Paul taught about hope within Romans. And we saw that hope, though it's not mentioned in the list in Galatians 5, uh, um, 22 to 24 there on the fruit of the Spirit, uh, it is still part of the spiritual life. It's a mental attitude that's developed in the believer through the application of Scripture, so that we can endure through trials. It should be understood primarily as confidence, and it is a confidence that grows. We have a certain confidence at the very beginning of our Christian life, but that confidence is a little bit wobbly. And as we grow and mature, we face trials and testing, and we apply the Word, and we claim promises, then that confidence becomes more stable and it, it, it becomes uh, stronger. So hope is always based, uh, contrast to faith, which perceives a proposition or a statement and we believe it to be true. Hope is built on a promise of some future uh, action, some future reality. And so it's a past promise, but it's always oriented towards a future uh, certainty, a future reality. And so finally we saw that hope provides, therefore, the believer with confidence in this future reality so that it strengthens and toughens up our mentality, uh, our mindset to face and handle whatever difficulties there are that are thrown at us each and every day. Uh, we then went beyond Romans to other uh, statements that Paul makes about hope in other epistles, and then we went outside of Pauline epistles to other statements uh, related to hope. And many of these, as I pointed out, are part of this sort of stair step, this virtue ladder that uh, is developed and articulated by a number of different uh, writers of Scripture. When we talk about virtue, uh, virtue is one of those ideas that is prevalent both among uh, non the non-Christian world and the Christian world. It's it's tempting to start to think about virtue and do a study. What is virtue? And then look at how virtue has been discussed and developed within uh, classical philosophy, uh, specifically within the ethics, going back to uh, maybe the uh, pre-Socratics, to Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Aristotle wrote a lot about uh, about ethics and the Nicomachean ethics. 
and others. There's development of ethics in the Middle Ages. And uh, classically, the way Western civilization taught ethics or viewed ethics within a, an Aristotelian or classical Greek uh, background was that there were four cardinal virtues. Uh, temperance, from the Greek word sophrosune, we often associate temperance with not, uh, not drinking. The, the temperance movement, the prohibition movement in the U.S. has colored our understanding of that word, but it has a rich heritage, and, it ha- and it's a, a word that is very close in meaning to the second virtue, which is prudence, from the Greek word phrenesis, which has to do with, with thinking. So they both have to do with balanced thinking and not going to, uh, to extremes. The third classic virtue was courage, and the fourth, justice. And in the Middle Ages, Christians added to those four cardinal virtues the three Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. The problem with that is that if you read uh, Aristotle, you read Plato, you read other ethicists writing in the Middle Ages, they talked about they had a lot of different virtue lists. They didn't just have four. And among the Christians, they didn't just have three so that's sort of a misrepresentation. They talked about many, uh, many different ones. For example, here's a quote from Aristotle's uh, book on rhetoric, where he states that the components of virtue are justice, courage. Those are two of the four I just mentioned. But then he mentions self-control, magnificence, magnanimity, which relates to being gracious, uh, liberality as well, gentleness, practical and speculative, Wisdom. So you see, they have different lists and different emphasis. And I read across a few quotes that were um, that were as well much much different. So we have these kinds of lists. And I'm just saying this because I don't want you to think that that there's a hard and fast step by step type of procedure that one goes through. Each writer states things a little a, a little differently. So that within the tradition of thought on virtue as uh, related to um, related to uh, the, the Christian life, there are to life in general. So even the unbeliever recognizes certain qualities of virtue. He just thinks that man on his own can produce them. The difference between the human viewpoint pattern and the divine viewpoint pattern is that in human viewpoint, there's the thought that man can generate this just from his own self-will. Volition is always at the core of the teaching in these areas, whereas in Christianity we recognize man can do good and he can do do a, a qualitative good, but it doesn't have any value before God. God recognizes it because the root is corrupt, the fruit is is always going to be tainted by the corrupt fr- root of Adam's uh, Adam's original sin. So we see both outside the Bible, within the Bible, that there are um, as many different virtue lists. You, one might say, as there are writers, and in some places, writers list different have different lists depending on uh, on the the scripture. And when you do read the scripture, we look at the context, and and we should ask the question. Why is Paul emphasizing these virtues in this list and other virtues in other lists? And it has to do with the context of, of why he's writing and to whom he is writing and what he is, what he is uh, addressing in terms of a, a, of a problem. So we need to be careful not to just set up some, some sort of, of uh, absolute uh, list and then follow that. Well, here's a comparison. I started with this last time, that in Romans 5, 3 through 4, you have first adversity, uh, which is n- just negative. You face, we all face adversity. And then we face it through, through handling it correctly. It develops endurance. And then endurance has a result in proven character, which is uh, a, a spiritual growth, the ma- uh, beginning to mature and develop, uh, tested or approved character and ending up with confidence. So at the top of this ladder, the, the final is, is uh, confidence. James looks at it a little differently. 
James states, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I didn't do a lot of exegesis of this last time. It's always, I'm always reminded when I look at various trials, the word in the Greek for various is poikilos, which is where we get our word for polka dot. It sounds like it's poikilos, and it has to do with that which is variegated, that which has different, different uh, uh, aspects to it, and it looks different. We never know. One, we may have similar tests or different trials in life, but they're always different, and we never know when it's going to hit. And that's why uh, James uses the word when you fall into it. You're just walking along, and then, boom, there's something that happens, and you don't expect it, you don't anticipate it, and... Uh, and yet it's there, and it's all kinds of different uh, trials. And he, he emphasizes the trial or test aspect rather than the adversity aspect. A test is a broader. It can be an adversity type of test or a prosperity type of test. Uh, it can be expected. It can be un, unexpected. And the bottom line is we're to count it or consider it joy. I think that James follows a great pattern here of introducing his basic themes at the very beginning. This is typical in most literature. You learned how to write this way when you were probably in junior high or maybe uh, elementary school to put into your uh, topical paragraph, your introductory paragraph, a basic foreshadowing of what you were going to say, the main ideas that were going to characterize your, uh, your, your, uh, your paper. And the writers of, uh, of the New Testament aren't any different, and the writers in the ancient world weren't any different. In their opening introductions, whether they were writing or whether they were speaking, they emphasized the basic themes and ideas that would be developed within the body of an epistle or within the body of the, of the, of the speech. And I think that after studying James, James writes to teach his readers how to count it all joy when they encounter various trials. He's not just, he doesn't just start here and give this command, say, count it joy when you encounter various trials. Well, how do I do that? Well, he gives an idea in the introduction, and then, uh, and then he develops it throughout the body of the, uh, of the epistle. And the basis for being able to count it joy is similar to the basis that Paul has over in uh, Romans 5, where he says that we are able to uh, glory or rejoice in adversity because we know something. James has the same thing. He uses a causal participle to express the, the reason or the basis for being able to count it joy because you know that the testing of your faith, and that's what it tests is, it tests the doctrine in your soul. What you have learned in Bible class and internalized, the test is going to uh, give you an opportunity to use it or abuse it. And you're either going to forget it or you're going to apply it. And so that's the test. So because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but let endurance have its maturing or completing work. It's bringing you to the goal that God intends, which is spiritual uh, maturity, that you may be perfect, that is the idea of maturity, and complete lacking nothing. So we can then take James uh, categories here, and put them alongside the Romans categories, and we see that they both start with some kind of a test or adversity. Uh, then there's uh, James brings in the idea of testing. Then they both go to endurance. Romans, as you see, Paul leaves out uh, anything between adversity and endurance. And then as you learn to endure according to Paul, you get tested or approved character, which is similar to what James is talking about when he says you're reaching the end. You're reaching the end that God desires. You're, you're maturing. It's the maturation process. Uh, Paul then goes on to another level expressing, expressing hope. So we put it up here like this. Let's get, there we go. Uh, now we have three patterns. We have Romans 5 on the left column, starting at the bottom, going, working our way up the ladder. Uh, the middle column is James. I've juxtaposed the various categories there, James 1, 2 through 4. And now I've added a third co uh, column on the right listing the eight qualities or virtues that Peter lists. And now oh, I put the wrong reference up there. It's Second Peter 
1, uh, 5, through, uh, 5 through 9 there. 2 Peter uh, 1, 5 through 9. And it starts with, he lists faith, then virtue, knowledge, self-control, and then endurance. So before he gets to endurance, he's got uh, four other uh, virtues listed that aren't in either Paul's list or James' list. But they're similar. They both, any of them would agree you start with a trial or adversity, but that produces different qualities. And so for in Peter's emphasis, he uses uh, faith and then virtue. We'll have to talk about each of these. Uh, some interesting things I've learned as much as I've sort of studied around and through this passage, I've come up with some uh, uh, new information related to some of these words, which helps explain it a little more. Um, you see an indication there, after endurance, you have spiritual responsibility, eusebeia. I've usually translated that in relation to the spiritual life, but there's a lot more to it than just the spiritual life. It always, that word is related to the Latin word piety, and that, in, in their culture, that word involved and included a sense of obligation to behave a certain way. It's more than just a spiritual life. Uh, there's an, it's a certain uh, responsibility to grow and mature within that, leading to uh, loving one another and then love. That's the, uh, the list that we have in, in Peter. So let's just begin by looking at Second Peter chapter one, and we need to understand the context. It's very important to always understand context of passages, and this part of Peter is really, really interesting. A lot of things I could probably say about Peter, but I'm, we're studying Romans, not Second Peter, so I won't get off onto that uh, sidetrack. But there's a, a lot of similarity between Second Peter and Jude. And as I pointed out in the Jude series, is that Jude is writing after, uh, after Peter wrote Second Peter. They're probably writing to the same group of churches somewhere in what we call Turkey today, Asia Minor in the ancient world. Uh, Peter was warning them that certain false teachers are going to come and they are going to uh, create a lot of trauma within the, within the uh, body of Christ. Jude is writing after they've shown up on the scene. And so there's a lot of uh, interesting parallels between the two, uh, the two epistles, but Jude isn't redundant to Peter or God would not have, uh, the Holy Spirit would not have overseen the inspiration uh, of Jude. Peter begins with an introduction, standard introduction that we have in many different letters. He introduces himself in verse 1, Simon Peter, then as a bondservant or slave of and apostle of Jesus Christ. Then he gives the, uh, uh, his, his recipients to those who have obtained uh, like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Then he gives his um, uh, blessing, uh, been a uh, blessing here in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge or by means of the knowledge. And here it's epinosis, which indicates a fuller knowledge, a more immediate, uh, applicable knowledge than just uh, brute facts or information. Always remember this, since we, we've got such a multiplication of information today, always remember that information isn't knowledge and knowledge isn't wisdom. There's a lot of information out there. We're flooded by information. We can't keep up with all of the information, and there's a lot of it, but you have to have knowledge, and knowledge isn't just information. And wisdom is the right use of knowledge, and you don't have to know as much if you're wise, uh, because wisdom has to do with the proper use, proper use of knowledge. And we have very little wisdom today. We have a lot of information, and we don't have as much knowledge. Uh, people think they know a lot just because they have a lot of information, but they really don't. And they don't have a lot of wisdom. They don't know how to, to utilize all of this data that's thrown at them constantly, and they're just overwhelmed by it. 
So we have epinosis here goes beyond just the basic knowledge of information and facts, which is gnosis, to a fuller, uh, more applicable use of knowledge. And this is important because uh, epinosis is going to show up again in verse 3, and it will show up again as we get down into uh, later development within, within this epistle. So there's the opening uh, salutation and blessing uh, or a bercha of uh, verse 2. And then verse 3 begins, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Uh, through the knowledge, that's epinosis again, uh, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be uh, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through uh, lust. Now, it's important to take a look at this whole section going all the way down to verse uh, verse 11. Uh, having set things up in verses 2 and, uh, excuse me, verses 3 and 4 as, the, uh, as his introduction, as his prologue, you might say. Uh, Peter then develops this starting in verse 5. But if you look at the way your English Bible and sometimes Greek texts are punctuated, they end verse 4 with a period. But actually, verse 5 should not be seen as being a separate thought. Uh, it, it, it moves right in, right from 3 to 5, so there shouldn't be that kind of a break there. Because what, what Peter says in verses 5 through 7 is the outgrowth of, and, and, the, uh, and the expectation that it becomes incumbent upon his readers when they understand what God has given them in verses uh, uh, 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 states what God has supplied them. If you look at verse 3, you can see the con connection. It says, as, God's, as his divine power has what? Has given to us. Whenever you see that word, anything related to giving, it is always a manifestation. It's always a grace verb. And so the emphasis at the very beginning is on what God has given to us all and then as you come down to uh, verse 11, skipping all the way down, he, uh, uh, Peter ends up by saying, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly, will be supplied. There's your grace verb again. God gives in verse 3. God gives in verse 11. That's the bracket. In uh, te technical literature, this is called an inclusio. In artillery, it's called bracketing. In artillery, when you're shooting at a target, uh, your first shell probably goes over the target uh, to get the range. Second shell will probably fall short of the target, in other words, to, again, lay out the range. And then the third shell hits the target, ideally. And so it's bracketed. It defines the parameters of your topic. You have uh, grace in verse 3, grace in verse 11, and that frames, or frames his discussion and explanation from uh, verse 3 uh, down through verse 11. Uh, also, in light of this uh, prologue in verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter's using a literary device uh, that is very similar to what we find in a lot of literature at this time in uh, in history. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of evidence of this similar vocabulary, similar type of wording from the time of about 200 B.C., 200 to 300 B.C., all the way through the New Testament period. And this is important to understand, that, that Peter's writing like someone who's the product of a Greek culture. He's not writing like a Roman. He's not writing like, uh, like a Jew. He's writing within the context of a Greek, uh, of, of Greek culture and using that kind of a language, which helps us to understand a little bit more and gives us a little bit of a perspective on what he is uh, emphasizing here, and this was used, this kind of vocabulary, this kind of a structure was used in statements that were made uh, in relation to a benefactor. 
where a city or a, a, a region had received certain blessings or provisions or gifts, uh, maybe protection, maybe military protection uh, from a king or from someone else, and then they would respond with some sort of statement about uh, how this benefactor had provided for them. And so this fits within that uh, pattern of a statement of a, of the, uh, of a benefactor, and, and that's exactly how Peter, Peter frames it using similar language. He talks about how God has, has provided for us. He's the great benefactor who has given us everything related to life and godliness in verse 3. And then in verses 5 through 8, he focuses on the fact that because God is this great benefactor and he has provided us with uh, his benevolent grace, that the, the, those who have responded and been the beneficiaries of his grace uh, are obligated and should be committed to a specific course of action that is walking up this ladder of virtue. Now, I've often taught this in, uh, in another type of illustration uh, because you run into people in the Christian life who are licentious as opposed to understanding ob- uh, obligation. Obligation isn't legalism. Legalism, I'm always amazed how many people don't understand legalism. Legalism is when you say, uh, my obedience to God is the cause of his blessing to me. That's legalism. God blesses us because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's grace. It's freely given to us, not on the basis of who we are or what we've done, but because of God's grace. He gives it to us. And because God has given us something, and it's so magnificent and so incredible, it it contains within it, there's something implicit within it that's an obligation to to be responsible with it. If I were to give you a a brand new Lamborghini or a brand new Rolls Royce or a a, a brand new uh, BMW, and I gave you the keys and we signed off and I gave you the title and that car is now yours, that doesn't mean you can treat it any way you, you that doesn't mean you should treat it any way you want to. You can. You can ride it and never have the oil change. Eventually you're going to just lock that engine up. You may not uh, ever check the tires, and eventually the tire tread is going to wear down, and your tires are going to blow, and you're going to be stuck where you are. You may never do anything in relationship to a tune-up or check any of your other fluids, and you may overheat. And next thing you know, uh, you still own this beautiful, wonderful car, but it's sitting in your garage or out in front of your house up on blocks, and it doesn't do you any good because you have been irresponsible in utilizing that which was given to you. There is an inherent obligation if somebody gives us something and it is ours, like any other possession that we have, to take care of it, to responsibly manage it and responsibly use it. And that's the idea here is that God has given us so much in terms of our spiritual life that that entails and implies a responsibility, a reciprocal responsibility on our part in order to uh, utilize that so that it has the benefit in our life that God intended it to have. And so this, uh, this is the pattern that, that Peter sets up here. The beginning it expresses what God has given, and then verse 5 um, on he talks about what that entails, what that should mean in our, our life. And then in verses um, uh, 8 and 9, he contrasts it with the negatives of what, what he will say about the uh, false teachers that are going to come in and cause problems for this uh, congregation. And then in verses uh, 10 and 11, he connects uh, those, those who go up the virtue ladder to the, king, the future kingdom and their position to rule and reign with Christ in the future kingdom. So it has a, a tremendous logical uh, logical flow to it, and we want to fit our understanding uh, in the middle of this. We have examples of these kinds of uh, honorific statements. For example, in one that was commending a physician by the name of uh, Philistas on the island of Kos that read, uh, Therefore, so that all may know that we express appropriate appreciation to those who practice the policy of making us the beneficiaries of their philanthropies, be it resolved to commend Philistos of Kos, son of Nicarchos, and crown him. So these kinds of statements were made, and we have 
literally thousands of examples in archaeology of these kinds of statements that are are made in that period of time. This is uh, what what Peter is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is just using the same literary style that you find in the uh, ancient world at that time. But he is shifting the focus away from the benefactor in the first part to the obligation for every believer in the second part because he is answering a question. He's answering a question, and that question is, um, how do we get what is is stated in verse 4? Verse 4 states, by which we have been, which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. See, that's Peter's claim is that you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can participate or partake of the divine nature. Now, what exactly does that mean? We have to understand that. How do we partake of the divine nature? What it means is that there are certain attributes of God that we can imitate and that are shared. Theologians, and you've heard this before, I usually don't ever divide the attributes of God this way, but theologians have historically divided the attributes of God into into two categories. Some are what they call incommunicable attributes of God. These are attributes that God alone has, and they're not uh, they're not reflected in his creatures to any degree. And then you have communicable attributes, and these are attributes that are shared and are reflected to a limited or lesser degree in God's creatures. And so those attributes of God that are shared with his creatures are part of what is known as the image of God. Just think with me a little bit. Let's, without going to all the passages in in the Bible, uh, let's connect some of these dots. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created man. Male and female, he created them. And he created them in the image and likeness of God. He said, let us create man in our image and our likeness. And what exactly does that mean? And we've studied that in detail, and it means that man was a finite representation of God, mankind, both as male and female. Uh, They are a finite representation of God to represent God and to rule over creation. So this involved uh, not a physical representation, but a representation in terms of his soul, in terms of man's uh, thinking ability, his ability to lead, his ability to uh, create, his ability to uh, make moral decisions, imitating the righteousness and the justice of God, uh, all of this would be part of man's makeup. We usually summarize these in terms of his uh, self-consciousness, his God-consciousness, and his, his moral consciousness. But that image that man had as the image of God, which was perfect at the very beginning, a perfect reflection of God uh, with perfect righteousness. It was untested righteousness, but it was still perfect righteousness that when Adam sinned, that image became marred. It, it, it became corrupt. It wasn't destroyed. It was simply defaced. It wasn't uh, removed. It was just uh, it was just uh, messed up and corrupted because of sin. And so there's a process whereby God is uh, restoring that image in man, and that is part of the whole salvation process and the whole process of redemption and reconciliation. And in, and Paul alludes to this in Romans uh, verse that's very common to or well-known to mo- most of you. In Romans 8, uh, 28 and 29, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those that are, call, are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the what? The image of his Son. See, the image starts off perfect, and we can a man in Adam and Eve had that perfect reflection of God's character, but then when they sinned, that became corrupted. The only way that that process begins to get reversed is in the process of sanctification of the spiritual life uh, through God's work in the believer. And we are going to be conformed to the image of, 
of, of his son. And so we connect that concept of image down through, down through time. So when Peter says that we can be partakers of the divine nature, what this means is that it is through God's promises, which are the principles and promises that are in God's word, that by applying them, then in the process of spiritual growth and spiritual advance, the character of God begins to be developed within us, and we imitate that, and we partake or participate in the divine nature. So the question that we should ask when we read verse 4 is, how do we become partakers or participators in that divine nature? How are God's attributes going to be manifested in my life? How am I going to change? And the answer to that is to walk up the virtue ladder in uh, verses 5 five through 7. By walking up that virtue ladder, as we've seen in Romans and James and here, then God's character is manifest in us. That's the fruit of the Spirit, those those characteristics that... Uh, that show up. And so in this process, uh, Peter is going to show how the those who have received God's grace in verses 3 and 4 can become participants in the divine nature and uh, benefit fully uh, uh, the, to what God has given them, displaying God's character and attributes uh, in their own lives. So he does this by going through these these uh, various virtues. As we go through this, uh, this initial section, um, looking at verses 3 and 4, another uh, quote I have here is that a number of Greek scholars have observed the similarity in Peter's structure, the literary structure, and his language here uh, as an imitation or reflection of uh, other comments or statements in, in Greek letters uh, at that time. Uh, one decree that goes back to the about 270 to, or 280, 290 B.C. is a decree that honored Antiochus III. This is the father of Antiochus Epiphanes, also known as Anti Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great. Inasmuch as great king Antiochus has continued his ancestors' policy of special favor toward all, all the Greeks and has brought peace to some and has given aid to many who were in trouble both privately and publicly and has brought liberty to some who had been enslaved and during his entire reign has legislated with a view to benefiting mankind, having first rescued our city from slavery, he declared it free. So you see a this similar kind of pattern reflecting upon the, benef uh, the, the benefits that have been given someone uh, from someone else. Now as we look at the details of what and the structure of what Paul says in 2 Peter uh, 1 3 it starts off in most English translations with the uh, translation of the first Greek word as as in Greek it's house and the the kind of the knee-jerk uh, basic uh, translation for house is this is the word as but it is often used in uh, numerous places with the meaning of sense or because. Uh, in fact, in some of these beneficiary statements where that we have where the Greek text uh, expressing the benefits of the, uh, of the, uh, that have been provided, that that's the way they express it is with either the phrase host or with the phrase apita, uh, <coughs> apita. Uh, which is uh, also has this idea of uh, giving a reason or cause. So it's not; it, it shouldn't be translated. We lose the force of it when we translate it as his divine, divine power. It should be translated because his divine power has given to us all things. Another thing that comes across here in the Greek is that the phrase his divine power is stated in a genitive construction, which is out of place here. And that's why it's referred to in, uh, in grammars as a genitive absolute. It's designed to focus our attention upon this phrase 
as, as, as a key phrase. It's taken a genitive and then it uses it as a, as a subject of a, of a clause. So the focal point is on God's divine power. But it's not just talking about his omnipotence. We think through the uh, ten attributes in the essence box that God is sovereign, uh, righteous, just, love, eternal life, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, I mean, veracity and uh, uh, immutability. But when we look at, at, at this phrase here, his divine power, it's, it's looking through the lens of God's omnipotence to his whole character. Uh, grammarians call this a paraphrasis where one attribute is taken, but it's really standing for the whole. It's not just saying this only comes from God's omnipotence, but it comes from his whole being, his whole person. And so you could substitute this because God has given to us all things. But it is the emphasis he wants us to understand is that what's behind this gift is God's omnipotence. Nothing is more powerful than God. So in his omnipotence, in in the entirety of his character, but specifically the fact that he is an omnipotent God whose power cannot be thwarted or broken, God has given us these resources and has provided these things for us. He has given to us all things, Peter then says. Not some things, not most things, not uh, not an abundance of things, but all things. It's an inclusive concept. And this is a foundational doctrine in Scripture that God has given us everything or all things related to uh, these next two words, uh, life and godliness. Now, the Greek word that is translated life is the Greek word uh, zoe. Common today, you'll find that as a name for uh, uh, for various, uh, usually young women, or now they're getting to be older women, Popular got popularized back with the hippies, uh, zoe. But um, <coughs> life here doesn't reflect to just eternal life. That's sort of our knee-jerk response, that God gave us life. Yes, he gave us eternal life. That's not the focus here. It's juxtaposed in this combination here with Yusabiah, which does focus on the spiritual side. So Zoe, in many passages, also emphasizes the uh, uh, physical life, the basic necessities of, of life. Uh, God recognizes this even in passages such as Matthew uh, 4 4, which quotes from Deuteronomy 8 3, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So even in that statement from Deuteronomy, there's a recognition of physical life, but also of uh, spiritual life that comes from the nourishment of the Word of God. Uh, scripture also emphasizes that there are basic necessities of life that we have to have in order to get anywhere in life, and that this is what is subsumed here. God provides for us, and this is emphasized by Jesus in passages such as Matthew six twenty-five and following uh, in the um, Sermon on the Mount, that when he talks about the, all the flowers in the field, that if God arrayed all these flowers like this, uh, take no thought for life, take no thought for for all the details of life because if God supplied the power of the fields, and he can do even more for you. Uh, God is going to provide for our, the physical necessities that we need in order to keep body and soul together to accomplish his will and his plan uh, for our life. So that's the first thing. So he's given us everything related to life and godliness. No, so, matter, so no matter how how bad things may appear, how dark things may appear, no matter uh, if you're down to living in a uh, one-room apartment and you're just having ramen three times a day, uh, God still has a plan for your life. You're still alive and you have the opportunity to minister to people. That may be exactly what God wants you to do is to be able to have a witness to the others who are uh, living in that uh, same apartment complex eating uh, all the various different flavors of ramen with you. Uh, so God provides lo- everything pertaining to life, and the second word is eusebeia, translated godliness, which is one of those one of those ambiguous, vague words that sounds so holy, like holy, it's an ambiguous word, but it's lost its its emphasis for us. We we don't understand what it means. Uh, eusebeia. Uh, 
Well, let me just talk about the English translation. Godliness means uh, in the old uh, English, in the development of English, God-likeness. So at the core of that word godliness is, is an element of this truth that it means to, uh, do, uh, it's focusing on that part of God's character so that we can be like God in certain areas of our, of our character. So it's related to the, uh, related to the spiritual life. But there is more to Eusebia than simply the spiritual life. In fact, in um, uh, the ancient world, many times uh, in non uh, non biblical uh, uh, literature, the word Eusebia often has the idea of duty or responsibility. So, in this case, it would be the duty of the believer in relation to God's plan. Uh, for his life, uh, one uh, the the Greek word was uh, was uh, eusebia. The Latin word of the Roman concept was uh, pietas, and there's a quote from uh, Cicero here on his book on rhetoric that pietas warns us to keep our obligations to our country, or parents, or other kin. See, it's related to to being responsible and, and mature in how you handle the resources that have been given you from country, from parents, uh, or from others. It emphasizes elements of reverence and loyalty to those to whom it is properly due, whether it has to do with God or parents or uh, social institutions or fellow citizens. In fact, it was a pietas for the Romans was a was a high virtue that uh, also included the idea of dogged determination and an unflinching devotion to duty, something similar to to endurance to hupomone. It is uh, somebody who is determined and is not going to be taken off course, but he is going to fulfill his obligations and his duty. Uh, to those who have provided for him. And so this this changes our understanding of Eusebiah. It has to do with the spiritual life, but it has to do with the responsibilities and the obligations we have towards God who has given us uh, so very, very much. So he has given us everything pertaining to life and to godliness, uh, and it comes through the knowledge of him, that's epinosis, so it's more than just facts, it's more than just understanding the gospel, it is moving beyond uh, that basic knowledge of God, and he is the one who called us by his glory and virtue. And here glory again stands for his character and virtue. It's the first use of the uh, uh, word virtue coming in here, standing, and it emphasizes the moral uh, excellence uh, of God. And then we get into the uh, next verse, verse 4, which we'll co- I'll come back to next week. Uh, by which have been given to us, that is, by which by his glory and virtue, which is, stands for his essence, again, by which have been given to us his exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, that is, those promises and scriptures, we can be participants in the divine nature. So that ties it together. It's a stress on knowing the word of God. That is our eusebia. That is our duty, our responsibility is to know God through the Scriptures. It's not just something that's optional. It's something that is fundamental and without which there can be no spiritual life or spiritual growth. So we'll come back and look at that next time because it's those two verses, as I'm saying, that sets up the, the, the goal of climbing the virtue ladder. And it is the Paul, uh, Peter's uh, expression of the virtue ladder in 5 through 7 that helps us understand the goal. And then we'll take that and we go back and plug all this back into Romans and because all of that, of course, is consistent with whatever Paul is saying in Romans. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and focus upon these things and recognize that you've set before us Uh, so much that you've given us. And with that comes obligation, responsibility to utilize it to your honor and glory and to continue to press on, to grow, to mature, and to do so with with a, a joy 
because we understand how it fits within your plan, your purpose, uh, no matter what the adversity may be that we face, no matter what the challenges may be, we understand that you have provided us with everything we need to face and surmount all of these challenges. And in doing so, in applying your provisions to those challenges, we, uh, we glorify you and we grow and mature and our faith is strengthened. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.